0: On this episode of Creepy Chisme, this is the tragic story of a family murder, a case you won't believe with a shocking ending that will leave you speechless. The details of this case are haunting, and I advise you listen with caution. Also, I share some listener stories that will send chills down your spine. Come join in if you dare. Hola mi gente, bienvenidos. I'm your host Lore, and this... Is creepy cheese me. <music> Listeners, beware. Some stories and info are not suitable for all, especially young children. Listen at your own risk. Hola mi gente! How y'all doing? Me? I'm okay. I'm (laughs) alright. Let me tell you, I have had the craziest week, some health issues, okay, but I'm doing alright. The thing is, I need to take better care of myself physically and mentally, and I also just need winter to be over. I'm over it. Which is sad because I think we've had possibly the most mild winter ever in Illinois, so... I shouldn't be complaining, but I'm over it. I need some sunlight. That's what I need. (laughs) It's been a rough month for sure. I've got the winter blues, definitely. And sometimes I just feel like I can't breathe. A lot's been happening, but y'all are my escape. And talking about stuff and admitting these feelings and emotions, it helps me. I feel 10 times better when I do that. But also, I listen to podcasts. (laughs) More than music. I've always listened to podcasts more than music, and it just helps me get through the day. Makes it easier to get through the morning. Now, lately, I've been listening to a lot of my favorites, of course, but some new ones. And it's been a while since I have given you guys some podcast recommendations. And I also have a lot of new listeners, so hopefully, one of these will suit you. And um, I hope you check them all out because they're all amazing. But my favorites, of course, I have the Hillbilly Horror Stories. Really fun. Weird Darkness, who actually, Darren Marler, the host of Weird Darkness, he was one of my big inspirations in starting this podcast. He's amazing and a really good storyteller, so be sure to check him out. And a plus, he's from the Midwest. Uh, Who else? Oh, I like the podcast Lights Out. It's like a lot of scary stories. Uh, Black Girl Gone. So good. Minds of Madness. My girls over at Paranormal Putas are back and so good. Go listen. The Stoner Buddies is a new one I've been listening to. They have such a chill vibe. Good content. 420 friendly. My friends over at Coffee and Cheese May, of course. Spooky Tales, and of course, my day one, my girl, Stevie, from Truth or Demons podcast. She used to have another podcast, but she changed the name and I love it. It's now called Truth or Demons Podcast. If you love the gossip about the Warrens, then you definitely want to check and listen. But yeah, those podcasts get me through the days, of course. There's a lot more. A lot more podcasts. I fit them in, like, during specific times in my day. So, like, when I wake up in the morning, when I'm showering... When I'm doing my makeup, getting dressed, when I get home and just need a second to relax. Yeah, so I fit them in. I know, it sounds like a lot, but I fit them in. And there's more. So maybe later on in the season, I'll let you guys in on some of my other favorites. Now recently, I've made some changes in my life for the better. A big one, I've started saying no. (laughs) Uh, I don't know where we left off last time in my personal life, but I had started dating. I know. That's crazy, right? Me? <laughs> um, and it was fun. Don't get me wrong. It was fun. It was exciting. You know? Because your girl still got it. You know? She's feeling kind of lame and like a loser, but she still got it. <laughs> How Lorda got her groove back, right? she would make a movie. Anyway... Uh, so, yeah, I did that for a little bit. It also helped me realize that I'm still not ready. And and maybe somebody out there listening agrees. Or, like, is it because I'm not ready or is it just because being in your 30s, I just, like, I don't have time. Is it wild to say, like, I don't have time to date? These men are in their 30s and they still play games. Yep. Yeah, I've decided that I'm just going to focus on me like I had been. Um, I had some moments of weakness during that time period, but I'm good. I'm so good, you know, and focusing on just me and where I want to be in the next year or two, that's all I want my focus on. And we'll leave that at that. But anyway, so yeah, I've been learning to say no. Now, that's not easy for me. I'm the person that you can go to and you're like, yep, I'll do it. Okay, I'll go. But not anymore. (laughs) But it's been some time now and I just feel less guilty about it. You know, it's getting easier to say no. I've also stopped reaching out to a lot of people who I just don't vibe with. I used to have a lot of older friends that I would like check in on every once in a while. But if it's not reciprocated, if you haven't reached out to me in over a year or more, I'm not going to go out of my way to reach out to you or try to hang out with you. I guess you could say I've just begun to value myself more and convince myself that I, uh, I deserve better. I deserve real friends. I deserve real people in my life. So yeah, if I just don't vibe with someone or am not on the same like emotional level as someone, then yeah, I've chosen to just step away. I think as we get older, we try to hold on to things or people that we had and people especially. Like we outgrow each other and and it's okay. Just like we outgrow clothes and all of that, people are constantly changing. Daily, and that's so great because we all should, right? We should all be changing. I used to think anyone who changed were traitors and awful humans, right? I never wanted change, but that was exhausting. That was mentally exhausting. But now that I accept the change and accept change in my own life, as we all should, I've just outgrown things. I've outgrown old habits, family members, old friends, and that is perfectly fine. If you're not on my level emotionally, like I said, I'm sorry, but I just, I can't have your negativity or negative influence around me. I've worked too hard to get to where I am mentally. I don't think I'm better than anyone else. Like, I hope you guys aren't thinking that right now, but it's just like, I hope you're understanding what I'm saying. Everybody's journey is different. And at this point in life, some of the journeys I've had with people, relationships, habits, things... It's just ended, right? And we create new journeys and we meet new people and new friends and all of that. And yeah, 10 years ago, I probably had about 20 friends. And as we get older, our group of friends gets smaller. And I always used to say, like, I remember being like, why doesn't my mom, like, have a lot of friends to go hang out with? Because when I grow up, I'm going to go hang out with her, you know? So I get it now. I get it. (laughs) And although I do have like moments of loneliness, I just remind myself that it's better to be alone and happy than to be hanging out or being around shitty people, period. Yeah, this was really hard for me to accept mi gente and I still see like younger people going through this and I just hope that they reach that peace that I have. Anyway, it's just wild because me five years ago would think I'm fucking crazy. If they heard me talking right now would think I'm fucking crazy. I've evolved. Allow yourself to do that. Walk away from anything or anyone that doesn't bring you positivity or happiness. Just do it because eventually you're gonna thank yourself. I get so mad when people say, We're gonna stay together, we're gonna try and make it work. Or people that stay at a job that they absolutely hate. Do for yourself. You choose the life, the legacy you're gonna leave behind. Just remember. And know that it's okay. It's okay to say no. Put yourself first. All right. Enough guru lore. <laughs> it's time for an updater story I've recently heard. The mothership is here. Take me please, por favor, llevame. I'll clean toilets, I'll be your nanny, I'll just whatever y'all need me to do, I'll do it. Just take me with you. You guys know I love me some alien cheesemites, but this one? <laughs> this one has me scratching my head. Okay. So last week on March 9, 2023, a UFO chief from the Pentagon came out and was like, "Look y'all. There might be this huge object in our solar system that's harvesting and pulling energy from the sun. Oh, and these little things leave and return to the large object, too. They might be probes. They might not. Um, que? So this same chief also claims that he thinks that it wasn't until 2017 that he can firmly state that we had our first extrasolar visitor. Hmm... So, the Pan-STARRS telescope, I think that's how you say it, in Hawaii, captured this moving thing that moved at speeds and motions they've never seen of anything in space. Now, because of this, they claim it's not from our solar system, but also the biggest thing is the object orbits unlike anything in our solar system. They go on to say not until recently did they notice these tiny, tiny little probe like entities that leave and return to the large object. In the past, they didn't see these entities because they're not big enough, so therefore they don't reflect any sunlight. Therefore, they're not visible to any telescope. In the report, they also mentioned the possibility that these Chinese balloons that they've been shooting down could possibly have some relation. Sure. So pretty much, they're saying that some big-ass object that moves on its own with the help from the sun's gravitational pull and something else is just spewing out these tiny little objects that go towards the planets and shit, and then when this large thing comes back, it picks those tiny objects up again. What is it? Nobody fucking knows. Another possible distraction maybe as we sit on the brink of nuclear war because grown men have to one-up each other i don't know man but i was curious as to why this information was released and i found something interesting so the aaro was founded in 2022 and it pretty much was created to study any ufos or uaps that would surround military areas and they're the ones looking into this thing and they are intrigued. But this year, it's time for them to collect their funding from the government and a bunch of senators are all for this research to continue. And I'm talking both Republicans and Democrats. And I can see why. Like, I can see why there is a safety concern, right? Especially if this mothership is sending down these probes to earth. Like, what are they collecting data on, what are they doing. I mean, not that I care. Like, I mean, I pray that these things are watching us, whatever it is. Just take us out. I'm ready. Just like, take us all out. Anyway, so the Biden administration this year failed to fund this AARO for nothing more than their basic research. Even though all these senators spoke up on how we need to research this big ass thing floating around our home. But no, we need more funding elsewhere, right? Like on bombs and nuclear weapons. Bullshit. I can't believe I'm going to say this. But the only thing I agreed with El Cabron Trump was on the research and study of space and UFOs. He would have had this shit funded somehow. Ugh, I can't believe I said that. Anyway, (laughs) yeah, so the Biden admin is like, nope, sorry. Which really sucks. But yeah, I think that's why they've chosen to go public. I want to know what it is. And I hope they release a bit more about it. But that would explain these tiny UFOs people have been seeing. All these little orbs and shit. I always wonder, like, what is that? Because ain't no human, ain't no humanoid fitting in a tiny little spherical orb, right? (laughs) But it makes sense if a bigger ship is sending them down. Could be a possibility is all I'm saying. Alright, our achievement today is hot and I have a lot of information to give you guys. So grab on to your nachos, mi gente. It's time to get creepy. So, you know those true crime cases that just leave a scar on your mind? This is one of those cases for me major trigger warning the details in this case are horrific yeah (laughs) i'll give another trigger warning once i get to that point so it's mother's day 1985 in a town subdivision in fayetteville north carolina people are just waking up to celebrate what should be a happy day of celebrating and honoring their loving mothers however there's a home in this quiet subdivision that sat eerily quiet So a neighbor who had grown concerned due to the fact that a pile of newspapers had grown at the front door of one of these homes decided to call police. She became worried after she and her husband went to knock and nobody answered. Inside the home they could hear the faint cry of the youngest child. So when police arrived there was still no answer which led them to have to break through the front door. What they found was a haunting and gruesome scene that to this day, they have not forgotten. So the home belonged to the Eastburn family, a military family consisting of Gary Eastburn, a captain in training for the Air Force, Catherine Eastburn, also known as Katie, they were married in 1975, and their three children, Kara, who was five, Aaron, three, and Jana, the youngest, almost two. Gary was hardly ever at the house, though. He was completing a captain training program in Alabama, and because he was so far away, he made a strong effort to keep in touch with Katie and the girls. You have to remember, this is a time where there are no cell phones like today, and so they relied on writing each other letters weekly and a phone call every week. Now the training program was only about eight weeks long, but after the program, Gary was told that he'd be stationed in Germany. So the family, although super nervous for this big change, were super excited to make the move. They were sad to leave behind their family and friends, of course, but most of all, they were sad to leave behind their family pet, Dixie. Such a cute dog name, Dixie. So while Gary was away, that left Katie to pretty much get shit together and get this move going, which included rehoming their family pet, Dixie, which was the best thing to do, honestly. Always rehome your pets if you must, if you have to get rid of them. Don't abandon them. And Lord Jesus, please do not drop them off at the shelter. That is like the most traumatizing thing you can do to your pet. And if you don't believe me, just look it up. Look at pictures of shelter animals and tell me that those aren't the saddest little faces you've ever seen. Heartbreaking, honestly. I want to save all of them, the poor babies. So what Katie ends up doing is she puts an ad in the paper about the dog, hoping that they'd find someone to take Dixie in. I remember getting the newspapers and looking at the, was it called the classifieds? I remember there was always like, oh, puppies for sale, blah, blah, blah. I used to love reading the classifieds to see what what people were selling. But to her surprise, she gets a really quick response from a man. In a letter that she wrote to Gary, her husband, She explains that the man seemed super nice and that she felt he'd be a really good fit for Dixie. So the next Thursday, the week of Mother's Day, Gary Eastburn makes his weekly call to Katie because he would um, make his weekly call the same day every week, Thursday, but he gets no answer. He's not immediately alarmed, though. In fact, he waits to call again the next day, but still no answer. So that Saturday, he calls again and still no answer. Now, I'm not sure, but I'd assume he'd attempt to have someone check on the girls. So in some reports, it states that on the Friday after he called and Katie didn't answer, he called the local sheriff and asked to send an officer over to check things out. However, it was pretty late, so the officer only knocked a few times and after no answer, left a note on the door asking Katie to call Gary as soon as possible. So the neighbors who called police on Mother's Day grew suspicious of the pile of newspapers, but also they hadn't seen Katie or the girls in two days. The family car was still in the driveway. The newspapers are piling up, right? So what's going on? So that's when they decided to go knock on the door and heard Jana, the youngest, crying. Now police, when they arrived, as I stated previously, they have to break in. And as soon as they enter the home, they are met by an awful odor. They first respond to the crying child. Jana, the almost two-year-old, was standing in her crib, hungry, and severely dehydrated. She was standing there and immediately reached out to the officer. Poor baby. Now I'm going to get into the gruesome details of the murders like I said, but knowing that this baby was alone for two, possibly three days is... I don't know, like I can't think about it because I get teary-eyed. Like how fucking traumatizing... (laughs) I really hope she remembers nothing. So police hand Jana to the neighbor and ask them to go clean her up, change her, and get her fed. Really, they wanted them to get away from the home because the odor that they smelled was not a good thing. The neighbor says that when they took Jana over, she remembers how filthy she was and she cleaned her up as best she could and put a t-shirt on her. She filled her bottle with milk and said the the toddler pulled the bottle to her as if she couldn't even grab it fast enough. Now an ambulance arrived for the toddler and took her away. Later, doctors admit that Jana was so severely dehydrated and malnourished that if she would have been left alone even a few more hours, she would not be alive today. Now the rest of the home was silent, but with the strong nauseating odor still present, the officers had an idea of what they were about to find. So they began searching. I want to remind you, mi gente, that the reason I share these awful details most times is to bring awareness to the fact that people are cruel. Don't easily trust. There are evil human beings in our world, and the reason I choose to share these details in particular is because it will help you better understand why this case frustrates me. So officers head directly to the master bedroom, mostly for the fact that from the hallway, they can see a child laying on the ground. That child is three-year-old Erin. She's found laying on her back, and the officer then walks over to the other side of the bed where he sees Catherine Eastburn also lying on her back but with clear signs of assault. Her shirt was ripped open and her bra had been cut open as well. She had no bottoms on except a pair of underwear that had also been cut open from the hip to the crotch area. Her body laid on a large stain on the carpet. A pillow was over her face. Then they walked into a third bedroom where they find the remains of five-year-old Kara. She was lying in her bed with the blankets pulled up to her waist and a pillow was over her face as well. They searched the rest of the home and found some signs of a struggle in the living room. A laundry basket had been toppled over, a newspaper had been thrown about, but that was it. The rest of the home was fine. When forensics arrived, they found the tip of a surgical glove on the floor of the living room. They also used luminal to check the home for any blood in other areas of the home. They found that in the bathroom sink, it looked as though whoever did this tried to clean themselves up. They also found a few shoe prints and a semen sample, of course, from the victim, as well as a pubic hair that didn't belong to the victim. After careful inspection, the three bodies were taken, and one worker remembers having to hold young Aaron's head carefully because it was almost fully detached. Aaron had also been stabbed a total of ten times, both in front and back. Kara had also been stabbed in the chest ten times, and her throat was cut. Katie was found to have been stabbed fifteen times, her throat was also slashed. She was found to have evidence of being raped before her death. I'm telling you, no human could do this. Only a true monster. It was estimated that they were murdered that Thursday night, late or early Friday morning. So a nervous Gary awaits word from his wife on Mother's Day, but instead, he receives a phone call from the Fayetteville police. He answers the phone by asking, quote, how many are dead, End quote. So he knew. He felt it. The officer's only response was to get home as soon as possible, that there had been a death in the family. So Gary booked a two-hour flight home. Can you imagine how awful that flight had to have been for him? It wasn't until Gary got home that he learned the true terror of what actually happened. So the story became breaking news. Police had to make it public because they had no lead. The people of the quiet town grew really fearful. Who could do such a thing and go unseen? Police did attempt to use a two-year-old Jana for info, but not only is that not strong enough info, if they even got any, probably could never be used as evidence. The question became, why did the killer leave Jana? They had no problem hurting the other girls, right? My only thought on this is the killer left Jana because they knew she could do nothing to jeopardize them. The baby can do no harm, right? I don't know. Just my opinion. So Chisma starts flowing in the neighborhood. The Eastburns were good people. Everyone liked them. They didn't have any enemies. So immediately police clear Gary. He was far away and had been on base in Alabama. Gary shares the letter that Katie sent only days before talking about the nice man who was going to take Dixie. They didn't know his identity, but a few neighbors had some tips on the man. One woman remembered seeing a military type man stop at the home earlier in the week. The man actually had mistakenly knocked on her door asking about the dog for sale, but she told him that he was at the wrong house. Now, here's where police finally get some solid details. A man in the area named Patrick Cone, tells an officer that he saw a man described similar to the woman's description, military type, walk out of the Eastburns driveway in the early hours on Friday morning. It was still dark out and Patrick was walking home from his girlfriend's house, said that the man had light colored hair cut in a military style and he said he was tall and built. He had a mustache, and wore jeans along with a member's only jacket. Patrick also stated the man had some type of bag over his shoulder and even spoke to him saying, quote, I'm getting an early start this morning, end quote. Now, Patrick found it really odd that the man was parked away from the home he had just left and he got into a white car. Patrick claims the reason he looked closely at this man was because he had a strong feeling that he might have been a burglar. Police use these details to sketch a wanted photo and release it to the public. Later, another neighbor reaches out saying she remembered seeing a white Chevy Chevette parked on the street the night it was presumed the murders occurred. Police also released this information to the public. So police are waiting for the man who took the dog to reach out and come talk to them maybe he can be of help and now also they await the owner of the chevy chevette seen on the block around this time they even went on tv to ask these two people to come forward to help in any way they can and to clear their name shortly after this broadcast a blonde-haired man wearing a military uniform shows up to the police station along with his wife and their two-month-old daughter The wife, Angela Hennis, saw the story on TV and alerted her husband that police were looking for him. You see, the Hennis family had just gotten a new pet. That pet was Dixie, the Eastburn's dog. Timothy Hennis was the one who picked up the dog, and his wife convinced him to report it to police to clear his name and answer some questions. He willingly cooperates, even telling police he was at the Eastburn residence on that Tuesday. He said Katie was very humble and welcoming. He liked the dog, and after paying Katie $10, He took the dog and left. Now, he claims that two days later, Katie called to check on how Dixie was adjusting. He also tells police that his wife and baby were out of town that weekend. Hmm, okay. So, he gives police his alibi, stating that evening he called his wife, went to the store, and got himself dinner. Then, he went home. And went to bed. He had an early night because he had 4 a.m. training. However, this could not be proven because back then when anyone reported for physical training, they didn't have any way to sign in. Now after Timothy Henness was interviewed by police, he willingly gives DNA samples. He gives them a hair sample, fingerprints, and a blood sample. While he was being questioned, they had some of the witnesses come in and look at a photo lineup And one of these witnesses was, of course, Patrick Cohn, who immediately points to Timothy Henness. But here's the craziest thing. After the interview, the Thule detectives thank Henness for coming in and for cooperating. They walk him and his wife out, just talking about life and stuff. And one of the detectives then realizes the car they're walking to is a white Chevy Chevette. Boom, we got him, right? So Timothy was the only known person at the location, the Eastburn home. He was the last to communicate with Katie Eastburn. He was picked out of a photo lineup. And his description looks just like the sketch they had. And he has a white Chevy Spet. All of this was more than enough to arrest Timothy Henness. And they did just that, six hours after his interview with police. So he was booked and held without bond. For three counts of first-degree murder and one count of sexual assault now police and detectives were confident and ecstatic they have their guy and a really strong case against him an easy win for sure but that wasn't all because later police discovered that the next day after the murders somebody used katie's bank card to take out a hundred and fifty dollars then, they used it again to pay $300 in rent the day after that. So, a woman recognizes Hennis as the person who withdrew the money at the specific ATM it was used at right before she used it. Also, they interviewed some of Henness's neighbors, and they all told police that on one particular night, they remember that Hennis was seen burning something in his yard. One went as far to say that he burned something in a barrel, and claimed he had never seen Hennis burn anything in his backyard before. Police then did retrieve a barrel from Hennis' home and added it into evidence. So here's where things get a little confusing and weird. So even though Timothy Henness's blood didn't match any at the scene, including blood found that wasn't of the victim's, And even though the shoe print found at the scene of the crime was not the right size as Timothy Hennessy's shoe size, a judge rules that there was enough evidence to start a trial. Now I'm going to do my best to explain as best as I can because as I said, the nonsense in this trial, ugh, let's just get into it. So the prosecution is like, it's clear as day this man is guilty. Look at all this evidence. And they're throwing it at the jury, too, because, you know, distraction. (laughs) Yeah, they're like, look at all this evidence we have. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Here's a bunch of witnesses we got saying that it was him. Guilty. Now, the defense is like, this man is being accused of something. They have no physical forensic evidence. None of his DNA is found at the scene. No blood was ever found on his clothing or in his home or in his car. He's innocent. So they ask the judge to allow Hennis bail and the judge is like, hail to the no. So a few months later, they go in front of a judge again and ask for bail. This time, the judge agrees and sets bail at 100000 and Hennis walks free. He even was allowed to work during this time. Both sides continue building their cases. The defense interview Patrick Cohn and he ends up saying that... He's not really 100% sure Timothy was the guy he saw that night. It was kind of dark. So they asked the judge to remove Patrick Cohn, who was possibly the prosecution's best witness, stating that the photo lineup that Patrick was given to look at kind of made Timothy the obvious choice to choose. But the judge denies this request and allows the prosecution to continue to use Patrick Cohn as a witness. So the actual trial had not started yet. A lot of the hearings had occurred, but that's it. And all the while, Henness is just out there living his life, working, being a good husband, whatever. So once the trial does start, the prosecution opens stating that, yes, there's no physical evidence, no forensic evidence proving that Henness did these crimes, but they have so much circumstantial evidence and witness testimonies pinning this man at the scene and there's no doubt he is the murderer. And although there's no forensic proof that he did any of this, there's also no proof he didn't. Now the defense fires back saying that the prosecution is trying so hard but failing to find physical evidence. Nothing has shown up in a match. They also spoke Of the size 9 or 10 bloody footprint found at the scene, and the fact that Timothy Henness was a size 11. Wow. Now, during trial, a forensic specialist explains that hair, blood, and fingerprints, and semen were recovered at the scene. But guess what? No match. I mean, the whole trial was based on could've, maybes, possibly's, and those are not confident words. No matter what each side argued, the other fought back with, Okay, yeah, maybe, but also maybe not. Again, neither side had physical proof. Frustrating, I know. So here comes the star witness, Patrick Cohn. He starts with saying that he regretted signing an affidavit by the defense, stating he wasn't made fully aware of what it was actually saying. Because remember, the defense claims Patrick wasn't 100% sure he saw Timothy Hennis that night. He says he signed it because the defense had been bothering him and he was tired of it. He then admits to the jury that he was certain Timothy was the same person he saw that night. Now, they also brought Patrick Cohn's dad to the stand, who confessed that the day after, Patrick pointed at the Eastburn home stating, He saw a man who broke into that specific home. Patrick also had his mom, two sisters, and a brother-in-law confirm this too. The only thing I have to say about this is if you think you've seen someone break into a home and you are so sure that you tell these people that you did, why didn't you call the police? I don't know, just a thought. (laughs) So when Cone's sister testified... She says that the white Chevette was parked nearby the night of the murders. They weren't the only ones who saw the car, though. Lots of people remember this car. I mean, I know my neighbor's cars. So if there was like a strange car parked on her block, I would know it immediately. So the trial ends and closing statements are made. The prosecution says Hennis is the guy. He's the killer. He has no solid alibi the night of his murder. And he was alone all weekend. Now the defense closed with stating, There's just no solid anything in this case. Neither that shows Hennes did the crime. And they made sure to say, if convicted, they'd be killing an innocent man. Don't they always say that? So the jury finds Timothy Hennes guilty on all counts. But did he deserve the death penalty? Or just a life sentence? They did not think twice. They give him the death sentence. Hanna spoke to the court, quote, the only thing I can say, your honor, is that I'm not guilty, as I've always been, end quote. Gary Eastburn was completely satisfied with the outcome, stating that now his focus was his daughter, Jana. And that's it. Case closed. Justice serve. Gracias por escuchar. Just kidding. <laughs> I gotcha. Just kidding. <laughs> April Fools. <laughs> Just kidding me, gente. Oh, no, no, no. This is far from over. So the same day Timothy Hennes was sentenced to death, he receives an anonymous letter. The letter said, quote, Dear Mr. Hennes, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry you're doing the time. I'll be safely out in North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X end quote. What the fuck? (laughs) What the hell? So this letter was sent to the sheriff's office, but addressed to Timothy Hennis. Hmm. So people sit on death row all the time, right? For years. In February 1988, Timothy Hennis's defense team appealed asking his trial to be thrown out and that he be retried. So pretty much they claim that The judge for that trial made a lot of mistakes, but also they stated that the evidence presented was shit and didn't prove anything. His blood type was not found anywhere, and one of the girls had DNA under her nails that didn't match Hennis. They said too many photos were shown from the crime so that the jury would be intimidated to negatively think of Timothy Hennis. They also bring up that two knives were found near the home of Patrick Cohn, yet were never entered into evidence. So, wow. Not only are they now arguing why he is or may be wrongly convicted, they're now giving some possible suspects. But the case doesn't move forward. So, September of the same year, 1988, they take this same argument to the Supreme Court, where they really talked up the fact no DNA evidence, no blood, no semen, no hair match. Nothing. And that was enough to win a retrial. So here we go again. A couple things about this retrial. One, some of the photos showed to the jury last time were banned. I guess a lot of them showed severely decomposed areas, as well as like protruding organs The worst shit you can think of. They claimed, although it showed the severity of the murder, it didn't prove that Hennis did this. Two, they also moved the trial from Fayetteville to another county, mostly because of of how publicized this incident, this crime trial, had become. So, in March of 1989, the trial begins. The biggest thing here was the defense wanted the death penalty off the table. But the judge is like, no, absolutely not. So pretty much this trial is just the same shit as the last, <laughs> with less photos of the victims. In this trial, a forensics expert said that she tested more semen samples, but the test could not prove that it was hennis But she also says that it doesn't prove it's not him. Oh, here we go again. You have to remember. DNA tests in the 80s were not as good as they are today. You know what I'm saying? So yes, the defense is saying, oh, his DNA doesn't match. But at the same time, how many of those tests were inconclusive, right? How many of those tests failed? They also explained that blood samples turned out to be the victim's blood and not the killer's. Hennis' blood wasn't present anywhere, including one of the samples tested that did not belong to the victims. But here's something new. The defense bring in a new witness. So this guy lived in the neighborhood and would walk early in the mornings around the area. His name was John Ropack. Now the striking thing about this guy, he was almost the same height as Hennis, had light blonde hair, and he also owned and often wore A members-only jacket. What? (laughs) So the defense is like, this guy could have been the person seen that morning, but Ropek is like, no, I'm pretty sure I didn't even walk that day. Or even the night before. So the defense also brought some new bitch up who claims she saw a similar man on the Eastburns property around 1am and she knows for a fact Hennis wasn't the guy. She claimed she waited to come forward because she was scared that the real killer would come after her. So during this trial, a substitute judge had to step in due to a family emergency with the last judge. This would either be really good, or really bad for the defense. So Hennis took the stand this time, and he recalls his visit to the Eastburns. It was late, the girls were asleep, and Katie was nice. And they even asked him if he thought she was attractive, to which he replied, very. He admits after the visit that he stopped at a sneaky link's house to meet up with a former girlfriend, but says that nothing happened. The former girlfriend also said nothing happened, but he did speak of marital problems. He said some other shit, but it was all, I'm not guilty, I didn't do this, blah, blah, blah. So closing arguments. The prosecution states the person who entered the home was somebody Katie knew or a familiar face because there was no signs of a struggle or a break-in. And that person was the man who had earlier picked up their dog. So the defense felt that they proved no forensic evidence, which meant that their client was innocent. After two hours, the jury returns and gives their verdict. Timothy Hennis was acquitted due to the fact that he could not be forensically linked to the actual crime scene. He walked free. Wow. He even went back to serve and was stationed in Kansas. Because he was acquitted, the military gave him his years of service for when he was in jail. He gets to just pick up where he left off. The end. Just kidding. Again. (laughs) We're not done. So fast forward, right? Life's going on. Timothy Henness is living it up. He actually ends up living a really good life. He stays with his wife during all this time. They have another child. And he even moved up his rank in the military. People used Henness in talking of wrongful convictions and how justice can be served, blah, blah, blah. Now, the East Burns' Gary and his daughter have not only had to move on without their family members, but for 20 years, they are left with absolutely no answers. Police, even 20 years later, still felt that Hennis was their number one guy. But in this lovely country of ours, there's something called double jeopardy. It pretty much means if you're found innocent in trial by a jury, you cannot be retried for the same charge again. So fast forward 2005. Police decide they're just gonna open the case, look at it again. By now DNA testing had become way more accurate, so they test the semen samples from the victim. They run it through their system, and boom, a hit. A perfect match comes up. Police immediately call Gary Eastburn. Oh man, here we go. The semen match, was none other than Timothy Hennis. Dios mio! You guys, this man, Dodged Death Row, won a retrial, and lived freely for 20 years. So now what? He cannot be retried. So what are they going to do? Now, although you cannot deny DNA, DNA tests are not always accurate. Most times it's due to person error, so like whoever is doing the test. Many cases have had major flaws. And wrongful convictions due to mistakes with DNA. So police think that this is what happened in the second trial, and to be super sure, they had another test done at a whole other lab, so that people couldn't spread chisme, right? And the other lab is still like, yeah, it's a direct match to Timothy Hennes. So police can't do anything; their hands are tied. But they know who can. So remember, Hennes was a military man. He was old as shit and retired but when police reached out and informed the military they come up with a plan the military was to ask Timothy to come back out of retirement you see the military can do whatever the fuck they want they don't have to follow laws and shit so he comes back ready to serve but he doesn't know they about to serve him now days after he arrives they tell him he's going to be tried for the murders of the Eastburns in military court, so his own fellow service mates are now going to decide his fate. But this time, the defense fucks up big time. I don't know what they were thinking, honestly. But this time, the defense argues that when Hennis arrived for the dog, Katie, a lonely military wife, consented to having sex with him. The reasoning for leaving this detail out was because Henness didn't want to cause Gary Eastburn any more pain than losing his wife and two daughters. This was days before the murder. So as you can imagine, the servicemen did not like the defense pretty much claiming that military wives are sexually deprived and cheat on their husbands. Big mistake. And a horrible argument. Obviously, the defense was in a hole and pulling literal shit out of their asses. I will say this, though, and this is possibly the only thing the defense had going for them, Hennis could not be linked to the pubic hair found at the scene. Actually, that pubic hair that was found was never linked to anyone. Also, he was never linked to the strange blood spots found on a hand towel in the bathroom. And don't forget the footprints found at the scene. Too small to be Henness's. And then there was the DNA found under one of the girl's nails, as well as Katie's. No match. So pretty much other than the matching semen sample, nothing else tied him to the scene again. So in order to test these things again, a judge has to approve it. I guess you can't do these things in military court, so yeah. But a judge denied. I'm not sure why. So with only one forensic evidence match, it was still enough to convict him and once again sentence him to death. But because it is military prison death row, apparently the president or someone of high power in government has to okay for this execution to happen, which has not happened since the 60s. But even if it never happens, Timothy Hennes will sit in prison for the rest of his life for the murders of Catherine, Kara, and Jaina. I don't know. Do you think someone helped him? Or do you think he was innocent? People in the true crime world, they argue hard on this case. I mean, there's just as many people that think he's innocent because of all the forensic evidence that doesn't match. And then there's some that are like, no, nope, he did it. He did it. I don't know. I don't know what to think. (laughs) Because, I'm not going to lie, before when I heard this case and before I wrote this outline out, I was like, guilty. He's guilty. No doubt in my mind. But right now something just clicked. So, although it sounds really shady to say I did have consensual sex with Katie and I didn't say it before because I didn't want to hurt her husband's feelings. What if he did? Right? I don't know. This is like, I need a scientist here. After you have sex, like how long does semen stay visible? Not visible. What am I thinking? Oh my God, this sounds so stupid. (laughs) So, okay. My thought that just popped into my head. So what if, if he's innocent, which is a huge if. Okay. Say he does go to her house on that Tuesday. He gets the dog. They have sex. And then what if Katie like doesn't shower? Wednesday and Thursday she hadn't showered yet would you still be able to collect semen sample if she had sex with someone days before because then what if you know Thursday somebody comes and murders them I don't know that thought just popped into my head and it sounds ridiculous now that I'm saying it so this is what I'm talking about this case is a very argumentative I and I don't know what to think I don't know based on feeling and gut he did it there's no doubt in my mind, but you just never know. So before we leave today, I wanna give some listener shout outs. First up is Sandy Lynn. Thank you for the follow and all the love on TikTok. Also, huge shout out to broken underscore dab frig. I think is what it says. <laughs> Thank you for all the love on TikTok as well. Also, Janine N. Jalube, M, whoever you are, your name is just M. <laughs> you liked all my videos so super thanks to you m star girl heart and i wanted to take some time to share some listener stories that i've recently gotten but i think i'm just gonna read one because today was a little bit of a long episode so this is from wait let me see if i can say their name this story comes from brenda e brenda hi thanks for listening brenda her story says dear Lore." Oh, this is from back in December, so (laughs) it says, Dear Lore, I hate that you're on a break, but hopefully we'll hear from you soon. Your podcast has become part of my weekly routine, and I can't wait for season three. Well, we're back, Brenda. My story is about my youngest daughter. She's 12 years old, and ever since she was young, has always had an ability. Let me get into it. Ever since the day she was born, she would stare off into space, which I never really thought anything of because most babies do. But it continued on as she grew older. When she was old enough to finally talk and express herself, I would ask, what are you looking at? And she would always reply, him. Okay, I just got chills. (laughs) When she turned five, it had been long enough that I finally asked her, who is him? To which she replied, him standing right there and pointing next to me i will say she definitely spooked me but i tried not to show fear because i didn't want to scare her i asked her to draw him as best as she could with any detail she saw i don't have the picture anymore and i wish i had saved it but she ended up drawing a figure all black with red eyes i asked her if she was scared of him and she replied no He plays with me months went by and she never spoke of him again forward to age 10 it's late at night and I often have trouble sleeping but I felt a presence near my bed when I opened my eyes it was my daughter she was crying and I asked her what had happened she finally opened up to me and told me that the man she had been seeing in her home since she was younger hurt her she told me that he tried to pull her from her bed And she even had a mark on her arm. Ten years my daughter had been seeing this man, as she called it. And for ten years, she had never felt threatened or scared of it. That night, I let her sleep in my bed. But I spoke to my husband, and we both agreed that the best thing to do would be to leave the home. We were renting the home so it wasn't as hard to leave, but I also didn't want to mess around with an evil or malicious spirit. Weird things always happened in that home, actually. I have a lot of stories if you want to hear them. Sometimes the cupboards would be open when I know they were closed. Things would go missing. You know, your typical haunting stuff. It never bothered me, and I never felt afraid to be in my home. But just knowing that something could hurt my daughter, not of this world, was enough for me to get the hell out. And I wonder if any of your listeners have ever experienced anything like this. It's been two years, almost three, since the incident, and my daughter doesn't speak of it. And I've asked her if she sees anything. She said yes, but she no longer sees him. Keep up the great work. Can't wait to hear season three. Stay creepy, Brenda. I'm sorry your daughter had to go through that. I'm processing your story. Sorry. (laughs) That's really creepy. I'm not going to sleep tonight. So she still sees things. I would love to hear more about it. (laughs) Thank you for sending that in. (laughs) But you scared the shit out of me, Brenda E. Remember, guys, if you'd like to be on my next shout outs, make sure to like, comment, or share any of my social media. You can find me on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook groups. Also, if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I may read it on the next episode. Make sure to rate me with five estrellitas, por favor. Five stars, baby, so more people will want to join our creepy community. Don't forget to send in your creepy stories like Brenda E. did. Any experiences, I would love to read them and you guys like hearing them. My email is creepychisme 4 you. that's the number 4-Y-O-U at gmail.com. And if you don't have a story and just want to say hi, that's fine too. You'll make my day. You can message me on TikTok, Instagram, or you can email me. This case today made my brain work in overdrive. So, let's get out of here. I'm Lore. Thanks for hanging out with me. And as always, gracias por escuchar y nos vemos. Creepy Chisme is created for entertainment purposes only. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, stay creepy and spread the chisme. Adios, mi gente.